0: Okay, so uh, Peter continues in verse 18 here by calling servants to submit to their masters, even if the masters are wicked people. The exhortation here is addressed to slaves, but slaves function as examples for all Christians. And so the principle here applies to all believers. You see that in 1 Peter 5, 5, um, which I'm going to read here. Likewise, you who are younger be subject to, to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So the middle of verse 5 here, Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. This phrase, clothe yourself, in Greek means to fasten or gird oneself. It's actually a knot or band by which two things are fastened together. Uh, Another source says, This was the white scarf or apron of slaves which was fastened to the belt of the vest and distinguished slaves from freemen. Therefore, 1 Peter 5, 5, gird yourself with humility um, as your servile garment encourages Christians to show their subjection one to another by putting on humility. This could also refer to the overalls which slaves wore to keep clean while working. Basically, it was an exceedingly humble garment. In other words, take the posture of a servant slave as you serve one another. So you have to really ask yourself, do you do that? Do you consider that I should have the lowest posture as I serve this person? Whoever it is, that's really challenging to the heart. Um, But again, we have to go where scripture goes and it does address our heart. Most of us probably don't when we think about this that it's a it's a servant it's a it's a slave like servant like mentality here, um, but it's true. All right, so back to chapter two here. Um, it's interesting that Edmund Clowney notes here that the NIV translation slaves NIV uses the term slaves instead of servants is not precise. Peter actually uses a Greek word which means domestic or servant, um, oiketas. Those servants are those those servants and retainers. Those servants are retainers who would be under the rule and control of an often uh, tyrannical head of household. Nevertheless, he seems to have slaves mainly in his view. Uh, Perhaps he wants to preserve the usual Greek word slaves or doulos for our service to the Lord. It is interesting. Um, I had never seen that before, Um, Slavery was widespread in Peter's world. It included many who would today be regarded as professionals, managers of estates, physicians, teachers, tutors. Interesting. Uh, but there is a, a, another, other scholars fall to the other side of this. Uh, J.J. Uh, Harrell says, despite claims of such New Testament scholars, ancient slavery was no more humane than more modern slavery. Slaves could purchase their freedom in the Greco-Roman world with the help of their masters, a procedure called manumission. <coughs> manumission, however, was available mainly to urban slaves, and most slaves had no hope of being manumitted. Okay, we could spend a ton of time on this, um, and looking at slaves and servants, and uh, it's weighty and it's deep, but um, I'll just say, Uh, Slavery uh, is is nowhere in the Bible commended or winked at, okay? Slavery in any form is wrong. To enslave an image bearer is wrong. Uh, But here in our text, Peter seems to be aiming at the heart rather than the institution, okay? So human beings, like I mentioned, as image bearers ought to be treated as such image bearers. Slavery is wickedness, it is sinful, right? So we just have to lay that out um, over the word um, because it's it's true, right? Okay, so either way we view this, we know that slaves or servants in the Greco-Roman world were under the control of their masters, and so they didn't have an independent existence. Peter says, be subject with all respect. The Greek word literally says, with all fear. Every time Peter refers to fear in this epistle, it's directed towards God, not human beings. So a couple of verses here. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Fear not men, but fear God. Um, 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, very plainly here. Fear God, honor the emperor. And Peter actually spoke against fearing human beings in chapter 3, verse 6, and chapter 3, verse 14. So, ultimately, slaves submit to their masters because of their relationship with God, and masters don't have absolute authority over slaves because God is the supreme authority. And they carry themselves with fear to God, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust, the unreasonable, master says So these servant slaves may and likely would be beaten without cause or even for good things that they had done. Uh, An evil and unjust master may repay evil for good. But if the Christian responds in the same way, good for good, evil for evil, then how is God glorified? If he bears up under uh, and endures evil patiently, then he shows that he was, he's broken from the chain of bondage and is actually the freest man because he's a slave to Christ. He also shows his confidence in God's justice. He doesn't have an um, avenge yourself mentality. He's willing to serve his master for the Lord's sake, even to honor him for the Lord's sake. So his master can't ultimately enslave him. Why? Because he's Christ's slave. He cannot humiliate him. Why? Because he's already humbled himself in willing subjection. Again, this is the posture of Christians as a whole, okay? So we take a posture of lowly, as we saw in 1 Peter 5. 5. All right, where am I? So, again, Peter says to be subject um, to the good and gentle masters and also to the unjust masters. To the good pleasant, agreeable, joyful, happy masters, and to the crooked, the wicked, the perverse, the unfair masters. So Peter calls these servants and slaves to obey those masters who are wicked and disreputable. But we should say here, Peter's not saying that Christian slaves should take part in evil, we know that, or follow a corrupt master in an evil action, we know that. And our call is the same. So from submission to evil masters to being a secretary for an unreasonable manager, we serve as unto God. For the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward, the inheritance, you are serving the Lord Jesus. That's Colossians three, twenty-three 24. Okay. So, sorry, I know I'm going fast. Uh, any thoughts, questions before we go to verse 19 and 20? On the human level, we can apply all of this if we're Hmm. employees In the way we look at our bosses, our jobs And if they're unreasonable, harsh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about that uh, specifically in that way as well. Yep, absolutely. Because again, this applies to, to all of us. Okay, so. In verse 18, slaves are called to submit, and now Peter explains why they should submit. The reason believers should submit is that it is a gracious thing. So the literal Greek word here he uses is uh, charis. It means grace. Verse 19 seems to lay out this general principle, and verse 20 sort of uh, unfolds the principle in detail. So the principle in verse 19 is that those who suffer unjustly will be rewarded by God. Verse 20 explains what that means. So what's spoken to us in verse 19 becomes a model of how believers should respond to injustice. So these things don't only apply to slaves, like I mentioned. Um, Actually, the word one in verse 19 there, when it says, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. The word one there shows that this relates to believers in their various situations. Okay, so it's grace, charis, when you endure pain while suffering unjustly because you suffer mindful of God or conscious of God. The Greek word used here for mindful of God usually refers to conscience in the New Testament. So the way in which this phrase is sort of structured in Greek shows that we should be ready as conscious of God. Um, slaves and we are commended if we suffer pain because of our relationship with God, a relationship that will inevitably cause us to deviate or have friction with those to whom we submit, right? If they oppose God, okay? So what's the main point of what Peter's trying to communicate here? He was saying that slaves who endure unjust suffering because of their relationship with God will be rewarded by God himself, And what reward did he have in mind? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. He was probably speaking of that reception of the future inheritance described in chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. That imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. Now, I know it can be easy for us to think about suffering as evidences of grace in the Christian life, which I don't think that's completely off. But I don't think that's what Peter is exactly getting at here. Um, the word for credit, and what credit is it to you, if, if you do good or be for it, in verse 20 runs right alongside the word uh, grace or charis. And it can also be defined as credit, fame, or glory. So Peter here is referring to the reward believers will inherit, which shows that grace, or to or this is a gracious thing in the sight of God at the end of verse 20, it's not necessarily referring to evidence of grace, but divine favor with God blessing the reward given to believers on the last day so we should also note that Jesus in Luke 6 32 to 35 I think I have that up I have it up I do Luke uh, 6 verse 32 to 35 shows that if people show their love only to their friends they're no different from unbelievers what distinguishes believers from others is that their love for their enemies and sinners And we see this most clearly where? In the cross, in the gospel. When you were waving your fist at the heavens, the Lord set his affection on you. Okay? So, Peter claimed that suffering for doing good, suffering for doing wrong, deserves no credit. But if one suffers for doing what is right, a reward is fitting. And it's interesting that three times in Luke, the reward believers will receive for showing love is communicated through the word grace. A translated credit in the NIV. Um, so, if you love those who love you, what benefit, same word, grace, caris, is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, same word, caris in Greek, is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you Expect to receive what charis is that to you. Same word here in the Greek. Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Me. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So again, the word grace can be synonymous with the word reward. And that's what I think Peter's communicating here. When I was studying through this, I kept thinking of Hebrews 11, that sort of hall of faith. Um, and in verse 23, the writer of Hebrews uh, takes time to refer to Moses. And this is what he says about him. I'll just go ahead and read it real quick. And then we're short on time. So Hebrews 11, um, I'll start at verse. 23 um, or 24 by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking where to the reward by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Who's the him who is invisible? It's Christ. He endured this reward, this, this, one, this him who is invisible, looking to, to Christ. Right? <clears throat> so he get, that's an example for us. Again, summary, I'll just summarize verse 20 here. Um, Peter begins with the circumstance in which believers endure pain but they experience this because they have done wrong. They have sinned. There is no reward for that. On the other hand, if they endure suffering um, as a consequence of doing good, they will receive a reward. All right? So, any thoughts or questions on that? Is that clear, helpful? Hopefully. <clears throat> okay. We oh, yeah, have no time. Ooh. All right. Verse 21. I got I to gotta move on. My nose isn't running, so thank God for that. Um, All right, verse 21. Um, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. Okay, so Peter says that um, this is what we ought to do, and then he turns and says, this is why. And the connection between verses 18 to 20 and verse 21 is the why. For to this you have been called, The to this points back to believers' experience of the sufferings, even though they do what is right. Called is a reference to God's effectual calling. Peter's speaking specifically to believers here. And what he says is believers were called to experience their final reward through enduring sufferings. Now, why would he say that? Um, Well, I think the answer comes through this encouragement. You're in good company Because Christ also suffered for you. it doesn't get far away from the gospel because Christ suffered for you. And what is he talking about here? Well, I think it's specifically the crucifixion. Uh, But verse 24 brings that out, which we'll get to in a minute. And chapter 3, verse 18 brings that out as well. Uh, 318 is a great summary of the gospel, and it's a great verse for evangelism. Just note it down if you want to take a look at it later. It's plain and simple there, right? Okay, so let's pause for a sec. Um, Pull back and slow down. Um, By application, what this means is when you are striving to serve your boss well at work and he or she responds with false accusations, gossips about you that you think you're better than everyone else when you're just trying to share the hope that you have, we've all been in those situations, whether family or boss or whatever. This says to you... In that moment, when you're being slandered and accused and all these things, and that uh, fiery red hotness rises up, <laughs> y'all know what I'm talking about, <laughs> that, that, that anger, right, that, that, that rage, this says to you specifically, you have sinned against this person, and the Lord, in the last two minutes, more than this person could sin against you in a thousand lifetimes. And God has shown mercy and grace to you. And so the, the, the fire that rises up is sort of doused and put out by the ocean of God's grace lavished upon you in salvation. So it removes any uh, vengefulness. We all have a desire. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel what you did to me, and we're cunning, and we're crafty, and we're very manipulative in how we do that, but the Bible doesn't leave room for it, right? So it takes your heart, exposes it, I see it, it's wrong, and the gospel washes out the fire of that anger and says, okay, now go and do that, go and show that, right? I know y'all can relate to it, y'all quiet, but which, which Y'all get me. From? What's that? That is <clears throat> Luke 6. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, I lost my place here. Oh, yeah, um, a Piper quote that I've heard some some years ago. He says that every sin ever committed will be dealt with. Either it was dealt with in Christ on the cross, and Christ took the wrath of God for it, or that person will take the wrath of God for for themselves for all eternity. It's one or the other. And that should put you in a very humble position and posture. We don't wish the wrath of God on anyone for any reason. So we get we get low and we trust and say, Lord, you know. You know what this feels like. You know this anger I feel. You know this sin that's in my heart. You know how I've been sinned against. And we, as we'll look at later, entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Hope, hope I can get there. Fifteen minutes, good. So Christ's sufferings ultimately functions as an example for, the, for this purpose. So that you would follow in his footsteps. In the verse 21. I mean, this is really, this is Christianity 101. This is the simplicity of Christ. Um. And man, have we forgotten it? We will suffer for doing right. Um, Let's be reminded. Philippians 129, for it has been granted, given to you as a gift, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I mean, it doesn't get more plain than that. John 1520, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So as Christ's disciples, believers suffer, as he did, and every pain and insult, received because of their commitment to the master. All right? So he's just driving us low. Get low. Get low. Have on this servile garment. Get low. Right? He's addressing our hearts here. All right, I'm going to go on to verse 22. Um, so in verse 22, Peter pulls out Jesus' sinless perfection. And where does he go to do that? Isaiah 53. And Peter, fashion, he points back, back. And this is not an accident, because what does Isaiah 52, 13, 53, primarily focus on? The suffering of the servant of the Lord. This is what you do. This is why you do it. This is how it was done in Christ. Right. By the time Peter wrote this epistle, Isaiah 53 was well-established in Christian tradition as a text that pointed to the sufferings and exaltation of the Messiah. So Peter quotes specifically Isaiah 53, 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, emphasizing the sinlessness of Christ. The only variation here is that Peter uses sin instead of violence, although he had done no sin and there was no deceit found in his mouth. It's a direct correlation. The uniqueness of Jesus is plain here. Peter wasn't just saying that Jesus resisted sinning and suffering, but that he never sinned. All right, so we can't go over this without looking at some text. I know we're pushing on time here, but sinlessness of Christ. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. When you hear and read stuff like this, uh, consider that every step Jesus has taken in obedience is fulfilling all righteousness in place of your wickedness, right? So John eighteen thirty-eight. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no truth. Guilt in him. Second Corinthians 5 21, one of my favorite verses. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 4 15. For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So Peter's main purpose is to say, you do what Christ did. If Jesus, as the servant of the Lord, did not sin or use cunning or deceit despite intense suffering as the righteous, perfect one, then believers should follow his example and not sin or use deceit when they are mistreated as Christ's disciples. And think about this. You sin and you are mad that you're sinned against when you're a sinner. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. I thought about this as I was going through this and wanted to share it. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Right? (laughs) Pulls back the garment, I see you. Right? It exposes us. And that should make us feel uncomfortable. Again, it's, it's true. We find ourselves there. But Christ never sinned. And not only did he not sin, but he never had a sinful thought or inclination towards sin, even when being abused and beaten and lied about and crucified. Not even a sinful feeling towards his abusers. Wow. And any thoughts? Any thoughts on that before we go to the next verse? I believe it, but at the same time, it's hard for me to picture someone without sin. Yeah. It's so easy for me to, even my fasted intentions and dedication, <clears throat> I know I'm sinning while I'm trying to be just. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Only Christ is the sinless one. Again, his sinless perfection. Perfection. Yeah, So resisting temptation um, or uh, living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord uh, by the same spirit. Jesus relied he humbled himself and did everything he did by the power of the spirit. And it is the same spirit that we possess the Holy Spirit. So, great thought. Anything else? The don't take to heart all things. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 to 22. <clears throat> okay. Any thoughts? All right, um, verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Man, it's so much that could be said about that. But, um... All right, so Jesus didn't live uh, a separate life. Um, he didn't live in a sort of bubble separate from the hostility of the world. Um, he wasn't in an ivory tower for 33-some-odd years separated from those wicked people. He was in the trenches. He was amongst them being assaulted by sinful, God-hating men. All right. so he didn't escape from it. It wasn't escapism. Though there wasn't a specific allusion here to Isaiah 53, it's likely that Peter had in mind Isaiah 53, 7, which describes the servant as one who suffers in silence like a lamb. In the ancient world, people tried to prove their innocence by arguing passionately against accusers, which we're inclined to do today, if not outwardly, our hearts. But Jesus' silence here further shows his confidence in God's vindication. Even if physical harm cannot be inflicted on tormentors, it's tempting to intimidate them with words of future judgment. But Jesus didn't even do that. Jesus would say, look, you've sealed your own fate by how you're responding to me as the Son of God, by how you're responding to my teachings. You've condemned yourself, but you don't listen. You, you don't hear me. You don't see that God has appointed me as the Messiah. So, again, when he is reviled, or I'll sort of bring out here before I jump there. It's interesting to see that when he was reviled, um, he did not threaten in return. And in that phrase, when he was reviled, he did not threaten in return. Uh, the Greek, uh, both, both of the main verbs in the Greek, Greek they're reviled. Um, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not um, return that for evil. Both of those Greek verbs basically express an ongoing action in past time. So what does that mean? It means that Jesus' spirit of non-retaliation informed his entire life. He wasn't like, oh, I'm having a good day today, so I'm going to let that comment slide. But tomorrow, I may not be having as good a day, so don't say nothing to me. That wasn't his heart posture, right? It was a lifestyle of non-retaliation, submitting himself to him who judges Justly, right? <clears throat> now, the verb entrusted here—try to pronounce this in Greek. Uh, para, ditto, um, is again imperfect, showing an ongoing activity that characterizes Jesus' life and ministry, and especially his passion. In particular, he knew that God would ju- would judge justly on the last day, both vindicating him and punishing. His enemies if they refuse to repent. The Bible never teaches that believers refrain from retaliation by sort of putting on a brave face or sort of just toughening up. It's not self-reliance, neither is it escapism. Believers triumph over evil because they trust that God will vindicate them and judge their enemies, putting everything right in the end. God judges righteously And God's justice includes both vindication of his servant and the punishment of his enemies. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Your vengeance is not even adequate. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Okay. So burning coals on his head is not like, I got him. The burning coals are, are hot. They feel it. Burning coals on his head is actually, he's quoting from Proverbs here. He's Proverbs 17, maybe. Proverbs. And he's saying that these burning coals are actually a, a turning of one from his own. Wickedness to repentance. That's the context of what he's quoting from heat burning coals on his head. I don't have the reference, but ask me after and I'll, I'll point it to you. But he's pulling directly from Proverbs. This is a side note there. Um, um, okay. I guess that's it for that verse. I thought I had more for verse 23. That's not. Um, any thoughts on this before we go to verse 24? So burning coals in the... Um, He's quoting from Proverbs, and I, I didn't have the text here. But in Proverbs, the, the burning coal is 25, 25, 25 Thank you, Pito. What is, what is the Proverbs 25, 22. <clears throat> okay, so I'll go through this really quick. Um, I'm going to start back up at verse 21. Proverbs 25, verse 21. I'll go down. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. I mean, almost identical here. For you will heat burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Uh, The north wind brings forth rain, and the backbiting tongue angry looks. It is better to live in a corner of a household than on the house. No, I went down too far. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Let let me go back up to verse 21. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. This is a good thing because if you look back back up at verse 21, if your enemy is hungry, you're giving him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, you're giving him water to drink. Those are good things. For you will heap burning coals on his head and for the Lord will reward you. So it's not this pushing, um, returning evil for evil it's actually doing good to them that by doing so, they would turn to the Lord. So it's a, it, it's a good thing you're doing. It's not an evil thing you're doing. right? It, it's a kind thing that, that you're doing there. <coughs> All right. Boo. Okay, so for the sake of time, I'm going to go on to verse 24. Oh, we got one minute. Um, I'll get through as much as I can. All right, so now the, the distinctiveness of Jesus' suffering and death comes to the forefront. Peter actually alluded to three different verses in Isaiah 53, which can be translated from the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, as follows. He bears our sins. He will bear their sins. He bore the sins of many. So let's compare that with the literal translation of 1 Peter 2:24: He bore our sins. He himself bore our sins. I'm going to get technical here. So the word "hour" in 1 Peter, in First Peter, there matches Isaiah fifty-three four. The word "himself" matches Isaiah fifty-three eleven, and the past tense "bore" matches Isaiah fifty-three twelve. Okay, so um, what's he bringing out here? What, what, what does all that mean? It's clear that though that those allusions, as we see in First Peter, compared with Isaiah fifty-three, uh, that those allusions they point us to Jesus' death as a means by which sins are. Forgiven. Often the word bore is used of offering and sacrifices. But in our text here, in 1 Peter, the verb must mean bore rather than offered, since the word sin is the object of the verb. Right? Sin is the object of the verb. He uh, bore our sin. Also, you see in verse 24 here that Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree. Um, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul here is quoting from Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. <clears throat> Let's turn there really quick. Deuteronomy 21, <clears throat> 22 to 23. It says, <clears throat> And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So, Paul said Christ became a curse for us. <clears throat> and he points back to Deuteronomy. Well, this is How? The spirit in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy is pointing forward to Christ's death by this crucifixion, by hanging on a tree. It's fulfilled prophecy, right? And Paul brings that out pretty plain here. All right? Okay, I just wanted to side note that. Uh, Moving on. Uh, The purpose of Christ's death was not solely to provide forgiveness, but to empower his people to live a life of righteousness. You can say no to sin now. Living to righteousness becomes a reality by dying to sin. The participle die and dying to sin sin shows how believers can live righteously. Freedom from the power of sin is a freedom that is purchased at Christ's death. You can actually choose to say no to sin. Christ's atoning death was so that believers will live a new kind of life. Peter closes this verse by saying, by his wounds you have been healed. Another reference back to Isaiah 53.5. The wounds here probably refers to Christ's death. Um, <clears throat> and it's possible, even with that, every dimension of his suffering, which would include his scourging. Uh, me, because of my theological background, when I would read this, and sort of how I grew up, um, I would always ask myself, after I was sort of learning the Bible a little, a little more, um, is, is Peter referring here to the forgiveness of sins Um, or a physical healing in one's body. I I can't tell you how many times I've quoted this verse and heard this verse quoted in reference to my physical healing or the healing of others. Um, So what's the answer to that question? I'll give you what I think is the answer. Um, Even though Isaiah 53.5 is used in Matthew 8.17 in reference to Jesus' healing ministry, it's clear, we can be sure that here... Forgiveness of sins is the subject. So that's the point. That's the context. Nothing else in the context points to physical healing. The first part of verse 23, which refers to Jesus bearing our sins, clearly points to forgiveness. And the content of verse 25 also implies forgiveness when it speaks of those who have turned to the shepherd of their souls, the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Okay, so this sort of runs right into verse 19, I mean verse 25, sorry. The four connecting verses 24 and 25 makes it plain that the healing in verse 24 is from the punishment deserved for wandering in verse 25. Therefore, the healing is centered on forgiveness of sins, not uh, a physical healing of an ailment. That's the context, okay? Okay. We go where Peter goes here. We go where the spirit goes here. And we park there. So the, um, where am I at? Um, oh, the reference to wandering sheep and is, is straight from Isaiah 53.6. The conversion of the readers is plain by the Greek word for you have turned. And the combination of return and heal is more proof that the healing Peter references here involves the forgiveness re- received at conversion. So believers are no longer lost sheep, but have returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. All those who are now believers were once condemned by God. Only Christ lived a sinless life, and he atoned for sins by his substitutionary death, his death in your place. With these words, shepherd and overseer, Peter reminds us that their ruler and ours is not the emperor or a slave owner, but Christ himself. It's likely that Christ is the shepherd here rather than the father, since only Christ is called a shepherd in the New Testament. I think that's pretty plain too. Um, The word shepherd is the word for leader and ruler um, over the souls of those in the church. The emphasis is not on Christ's tenderness, which is usually the first thing we think about when we think about Christ as a shepherd. That's not the emphasis here, but it's on his authority, which matches the context. Christ is supreme over all things. And we know that because it's connected with overseer, episkopos in the Greek. In other places in the New Testament, the term overseer refers to those who had authority in churches. For the sake of time, I won't be able to read all these verses that bring that out, but you can jot them down if you like. I'll just go through them. Acts 20-28, um, Philippians 1:1, 1, 1, one Timothy 3:2, 2 and Titus 1:7. Um, Here in our 1 Peter 2.25 text, it refers to Christ as the ultimate overseer who rules over the church. Conversion involves returning to Christ as ruler and Lord. So we bow to the lordship of Christ and salvation and we entrust just judgment to God for every wrong and every abuse that we have ever endured from the day we believed until the day Christ returns. When he will deal with every sin ever committed in the history of man, and every sin committed against his bride. That's all I got. That's good. <laughs> I made it. <laughs> Whoever prayed, thank you. <laughs> all right, let's let's pray.